PL Studios in the heart of downtown London, Wellington and Dundas. London Live with Mike Stubbs is on the air. It's the show that's in your backyard and on your side. Now, here's your host, Mike Stubbs. Right now, federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer is talking foreign policy and defense. So maybe just maybe we'll have things to identify him with. He hasn't been saying a lot. Now, this means he's saying something. What is it? Well, we'll look into that a little later on. We have a lot to say on certain things. If you are looking at renting a property or you are looking at buying a property, what's it like right now? It's not easy. Not easy at all. And there is a new documentary out. And we're going to talk with someone who is featured in it probably in a week or so. But I wanted to do some background digging even before we got there. So to look around the province of Ontario, to look around this area at things like home sales, at things like rental properties. And we're going to spend a chunk of time doing that this hour. We're going to look at how big the numbers are getting sales-wise, and how tiny the numbers are getting for vacancy rates. Now, what this documentary looks at, and we're not going to dive into this just yet because I want to get the lay of the land first, and then in about a week or so, we'll be able to talk with the documentary film, well, a, a, let's call it someone who is featured in the documentary. And it's called Push. And you can look it up right now, pushthefilm.com. And what it looks at, is the rise in sale prices of everything. So single-family homes, condominiums, even sale of apartments that are then rented out. And it traces all of this back to 2008. What happened in 2008? Market took a dive. What did some investors do? Well, they started to invest in real estate, and that's what's laid out in this documentary. And it will say that a lot of real estate was bought up, not just in Canada or the United States, but around the world by private equity firms. And what they have done is used that for investors. So investors will give them their money to invest, and you can turn a very quick, very nice profit using what people have profited on for years, and that's real estate. Because we have not really seen a negative downtrend very often in real estate. And we've never seen prices go back to where they originally were. Talk to somebody right now who was able to purchase a house for $14,000. They exist. $10,000 in London. That used to be a sale price for a house. You could get into an actual house. Not necessarily the biggest house on the block, but it was a house. Had three bedrooms. Ten grand. Now, up over $400,000 on average. So these private equity firms, according to what is laid out in this documentary push, have gotten into buying up real estate everywhere. So what they look for is something that is being undervalued. So a lot of times for apartment buildings, they will look at things that are in disrepair, they're aging, they'll buy them up. And then they'll hire contractors, and they've got enough capital now that they pour some money into those things, and then they raise the rent. One of the people that is talked to in this documentary is from San Francisco. 
She had a decent job. Not a not a job that's going to pay you anything to leave you more than sort of comfortable living in San Francisco. It's a very expensive place to live. But she was paying, let's call it $1,000 a month for rent, and then somebody came in and spruced up her apartment building. They do not have the same kind of rent controls in the United States, and in this case in California, that we have here in Ontario. So that's something we'll spell out a little later on. I want to know more about rent control in Ontario and how that works, and we'll make sure and find that out. But she was, let's say, spending 1000 bucks. Now her rent got jacked to over $2,000 a month. So what does that mean? It means she ultimately couldn't afford it. She spent time living with friends. She tried to move in with her sister, but her mom was already living with her sister because her mom went into the same situation. This woman was forced to, with a job, move into a tent city. And you see tent cities all over the place now. And this, by this movie, is called a crisis because you have people who are jacking up prices and lowering vacancy rates. And now, if you look at some countries, according to this documentary again, they're having political sway. Because if you want to bring in rent control, all of a sudden they have millions of dollars to advertise against it. And in some places where they've tried to do it, it doesn't pass. Now, again, Ontario, not the same situation. And we'll get into that later. But ahead of talking with the documentary people, Let's look around at sales in this area, and let's look around at renting in this area. And by all means, if you have any stories about trying to find a rental property or dealing with the rent that you have, please let us know. Because what do we need in life? Let's boil it down. We need to eat. Well, we know that that's becoming a concern. We're not going to call it a crisis, although you have some people who will call it a crisis. But it is a concern. We also need shelter. And if you have food and if you have shelter, you can get by. Those are the two things. And right now, both of them are becoming increasingly expensive and in some cases, increasingly difficult to find. We know that we need more affordable housing. That's been laid out. What can we do about it? Nothing fast, apparently. Now, the Ontario government has brought in a new omnibus bill and it's promising to help more people get into housing, meet needs that exist in the province. We'll see how that works. And that's something else we'll talk about in about a half hour from now when we are joined by Tony Irwin, Federation President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. So we'll get his perspective on how renting is going. In about 10 minutes, we are going to talk about sales in London and St. Thomas because they continue to go through the roof. And some of the numbers that we compare from 10 years ago, they're mind-blowing as to how much this market has increased. What do you do if you're somebody trying to get into it for the first time? That's a question we'll ask. And then in an hour from now, I can't wait. It's somebody who is a fantastic guest. If you are at all interested in sports or gambling or maybe both, this is a guy that you need to hear from. And Declan Hill has been on London Live before, and he has actually been on London Live talking about a subject that he knows very, very well, and that subject is match-fixing. This is a shocking uh, true story. I infiltrated a gang of match-fixers that effectively was going around the world to dozens of different leagues, and of course they would go to the World Cup. Um, that is the biggest gambling mecca um, 
uh, in the world in terms of sports gambling. And they would uh, uh, approach players uh, and referees and team officials, and they would fix one or two matches at each of those big World Cup tournaments. When this was told to me at a very high-pressure meeting, uh, myself, the gang leader, and various of his henchmen around me at a midnight meeting uh, at, a, at an Asian uh, golf course, uh, I, I said very respectively, I, I, I'm so sorry, sir, I just don't believe you. I, I, I believe that you can fix a, Asian sports league, but I don't believe you can fix the, the World Cup or match, uh, a match at the World Cup. And the guy looked at me, cold stone eyes, and just said, okay, watch me. And, and my first book, The Fix, is this, that story of how um, I, I went into their gang and, and, and followed them around as they were doing that. And one more fact that our listeners will need to know to provide the credibility to understand this is that some teams at the World Cup of Soccer, which of course is coming up uh, in June in in Russia, some of those teams don't pay their players. So you have a kind of Chicago White Sox uh, replication where you have one team that's really well paid that's running on the field, uh, being watched by billions of people around the world, and the team they're playing uh, has actually ripped off their players. And so their players will be running on that field not being well paid. And that's right pickings for the match fixers. And they've fixed matches at the last World Cup since at least the mid-90s. Is match fixing in terms of those gangs that try and overrun leagues or try and infiltrate teams and sway players, is that growing? Are there more people trying to do it now? Yeah, because again, it's it it it, it walks lockstep with this globalized sports gambling. Uh, again, I don't want to insult anyone who's interested in 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 the Gaelic games, but five ten years ago, it wouldn't be worth trying to fix the caber toss in a guy in the Gaelic games. And again, I'm not suggesting there's anything now. I'm not suggesting that the caber tossing guys are corrupt or anything. But there'll be now tens of thousands of euros, dollars, whatever currency placed on these relatively small, obscure tournaments. And, and that suddenly gives people motivation uh, to fix um, you know, events that they wouldn't have, wouldn't have done before. So this is the problem. This is the issue. And it's facing all sports around the world. And really, many sports officials have not upped their game and made the responses effective to what's going on. That is Declan Hill who is an investigative journalist and he's the author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, that he referenced there in that clip. He's authored Match Fixing in Football, and that was from about a year ago before the World Cup. And he ended up pointing something out. And you can look this up because it happened. He ended up pointing out right before the World Cup that there was a group of referees that all of a sudden were taken out of the World Cup. They were coming from Africa. And the reason they were taken out was there was a concern that they had accepted money from match fixers. And this sounds Hollywood. This sounds wild. But as Declan pointed out, he said to the guy, look, you can fix Asian soccer. That league is corrupt. No problem. Nobody even pays attention to that anymore because of the corruption levels in it, because of how fixed it became. I don't believe you can fix the World Cup. He said, just watch me. So later on, after we had that conversation, you had a group of referees from Africa who were removed. And the allegation was that they had accepted money. Know how much money they accepted? 
If you were a referee going to the World Cup and you were being asked to perhaps fix a match or they just wanted to get you on their side in case you could, how much money would that take? Huh. It'd take a lot, wouldn't it? Ten grand? Twenty grand? Thirty grand? A hundred thousand dollars? Six hundred bucks. That's what it was. Six hundred dollars. That's all it took. So he's pointed to tennis. The other interesting thing, if if you are looking around at, at what things are very susceptible, tennis became very corrupt. Not the tennis that you watch at the French Open, not Wimbledon, not things like that. Okay, You don't see the level of tennis that wound up being infiltrated because only a certain number of tennis players in the world make money. The rest of them are struggling to make money. They're hoping one day they'll make money. They're hoping to win matches, but they don't. But if you have somebody coming up to you saying, hey, I see that you're playing in this tournament over here. How about, uh, how about you losing three sets? Make that happen? And all of a sudden the person says, you know, I'm not making a lot of money to play in this tournament. No guarantee I'm going to win. And all of a sudden they have that moral dilemma. And some of them cave. And some of them accept the money. And that's where the match fixing starts there. So, in less than an hour from now, Declan Hill is going to join us on London Live. He's a fascinating guy, and one of the things he's going to address is which league in North America is most susceptible to the coming match fixing? Because it's happening all over the place, and he's got the proof, he's got the people, and in fact, he'll be talking about something that he's put together where... The people aren't just being quoted. They're coming out and speaking about this. They've left some of these gangs. They're talking about this. He's a fascinating guy. Comes up in an hour from now. Up next, let's dig into sale prices of homes. Let's dig into low vacancy rates. And let's find out what is happening around this area and across the province. We'll do that as London Live continues. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Housing numbers are not going down. They've been going up forever. Early 70s, you could buy a house in London. Could you do it for under 10000 bucks? You could definitely do it for $10,000, for sure. $20,000? Absolutely. Now, not so much. Things have gone up quite a bit. 1,055 homes sold in the month of April. And we want to look into how the sell market is. And then we want to look into rental properties in all of Ontario. And that's coming up in just a little bit. But first, we always like talking with Richard. Richard, how are things? Hello. Richard, what do you have for us? Oh, you're talking about housing and rent controls, etc.? Yes. I just wanted to make a couple of quick comments, you know, Mike. Did you realize that 80% of all Canadians, right, live under one form of rent control or another? And it varies, Mike, from province to province, depending, right, where you are, on how strong those rent controls are and whether those landlords, right, can get their way around it. Mm-hmm. There's only two provinces in the country, Mike, that don't have rent controls at all, and that's Alberta and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan had them, right, once for 20 years, and then they did away with it, and Alberta once had them temporarily from 77 to 1980 under former uh, Premier Peter Loggie. But anyways, let's talk about London here. You're talking about housing prices, yes? 
I remember when my father, Mike, here in the city of London, when he bought his first home on Inkerman Street back in 63, he got it for $9,500. And I remember it would have been back in 72. I had an uncle, right, my father's brother, who bought a home on Cavendish Crescent, and he got it for $13,000. So, yes, housing has really skyrocketed. But I'll tell you how bad it is in London right now. Even in public housing right now, if you are two old age pensioners, Mike, on fixed incomes, you have to pay $710 a month starting July the 1st for 480 square feet. Can you imagine that? $710 a month. And this is in public housing. And, And this is two old age pensioners. But two old age pensioners, he and she, they can get by, right? And life goes on, eh? But can you imagine, Mike, how hard it must be for young families here in London trying to find affordable housing and you've got children to feed and put clothes on their backs? I can't. So that's what I'm saying. We need more affordable housing here in London, eh? But yes, one thing, right, I am very grateful to Ontario for is that they still do have rent controls here. But the bad thing about it, though, Mike, how they get around here, the landlords, right? Once the tenant moves out, he or she, then they can raise the rent as high as they want after that, Mike. And then naturally that new individual, he or she, they either pay that rent when they move in, right, or they don't have a place to live. So there's so many ways, though, that landlords can get around rent controls. But at least Ontario still has some form of rent control and having something is better than nothing. But yes, we definitely need more affordable housing in London. Anyways, Mike, you have a nice day. All right. Thanks, Richard. Really appreciate the call. And Richard's exactly right. There are ways around things. There's always ways around things. And, you know, you you aim to close loopholes. One thing that we have heard in this latest omnibus bill that comes from the Ontario government is that rent control is going to continue. Now, the idea behind the omnibus bill is to get people into housing to meet their needs, to meet their budget. Now, that's a nice little political moniker right there. That's a nice little banner that you can put out. But the concern in all of this is how do you do it? Because you can't just build a building. doesn't work that way. It takes a long time. Look at what we have on the go here. I mean, we have buildings that are laid out. We've had them laid out for a long time. We're not necessarily seeing a lot of shovels in the ground yet. It takes a while to build those. And ultimately, how's that going to affect the entire market? What will the rents be there? And if the rent is bigger there, then does it bump up rents for similar properties? We're in the same thing. You know, if somebody's selling a tomato for 3 bucks and somebody else is selling it for $1.50, you're probably going to go and buy it from the $1.50 guy. And the dollar fifty guy may be happy to sell it to you for a buck fifty until he looks over and sees, hey, wait a minute, my competitor who's still in business is selling a tomato for three dollars. Huh. I'm I'm kind of missing out on fifty percent of my profits. Well, I'm gonna raise my cost to three dollars. And I'm gonna sell my tomato for three dollars. It goes one way or the other. Either the guy selling for three dollars is gonna dump down or The other guy's going to come up, and we see a lot of comeuppance. So when it comes to rental properties, and this is, again, why off the top we referenced that push, the film, which is a documentary, which looks at private equity firms purchasing rental properties, single-family homes, you name it, fixing them up, selling them, and then it's their investors who are getting the return on this. And we'll talk with somebody about that in 
in the future. But today, I want to get the lay of the land. So if we break down some of the numbers from L-Star, here's basically the way that things shaped up. In the month of April, $429,058 was the average price of a house in London. $429,058. The best perspective on that from the L-Star release comes from a look back 10 years ago. And the president of L-Star, Earl Taylor, had quoted it, saying, if you go back 10 years ago, the average sales price, or sale price, is up 134.4%. So we've more than doubled. More than doubled. You could get a house for in the 200000 range on average. Now, more than double that. People with houses are saying, hooray. People without houses are saying, what do I do? How do I ever get into this? Now, you can get into the market working with a professional. That helps somebody who knows the market. But it's not easy. It's not easy in any way, and you don't want to become house poor. So that's the sales market right now, which is on fire, showing no sign of slowing down because these numbers are from April when normally May and June are the really hot property months in the real estate market. What about rental? What about Ontario? And what about what the government has said? Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll address that on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Earlier today, you heard Devin Peacock on the Craig Needle Show talking health care. Do you realize that London has one of just seven centers of excellence for Parkinson's research across the entire country? That's a thing. We are one of those leaders. You name it. It, it doesn't seem to matter what you look at, what part of healthcare, some of it has a nice little line, a nice little thread right back to London, Ontario. And I do want to make mention of something that is taking place because there are 31 Harvey's restaurants in this area that are participating in this. And it is running from now until May 15th. And if we want to find a way to take Parkinson's off the radar, off the map, make it a thing of the past, wouldn't that be nice? then you have an opportunity to go in and buy a shake. And it is Let's Shake for PD, which is Let's Shake for Parkinson's and research into making this go away. That is that is the ultimate goal. So it's called Let's Shake. And you can head into Harvey's, any of the participating locations in London, St. Thomas, Strathroy, even if you go to Stratford or Paris, Paris, Ontario, you can buy a shake there. And it has been reduced to $3, and a dollar of every shake goes to Let's Shake in support of Parkinson's research. So that is coming up. And actually, it's on now until May 15th. Coming up on London Live, we're going to be looking at rent. Because if you talk to anybody who has gone looking to rent, it doesn't seem to matter what city they are in. If you have a family member and they live in Sault Ste. Marie, hey, you you looking for a new place? Yeah. How's the search going? I don't know. Doesn't seem to be a lot of stuff available. Vacancy rates are are tough. Now, in the bigger centers, they can even be worse. In London, yeah, vacancy rates, they're not as high as they once were. So 
what do we do in all of this? Well, the Ontario government has introduced an omnibus bill, and what it wants to do is reduce all of the administration. Remember we were talking about that? Reduce all of the administration that goes into getting some properties built and address what they consider to be a 100,000 apartment unit shortage. That's a significant number. I mean, yeah, we have millions and millions and millions of people in the province. What are we up to now? What are, I'll have to check Ontario's population. We are not quite at 20 million, right? We'll check it. But 100,000 apartment units, that's short. So they want to get that addressed. How's it going to work out? Well, in a moment, we'll talk with Tony Irwin. He is the Federation President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. And we'll get his thoughts on what he is seeing now in May of 2019. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So... We do have a rental shortage, you can say in London, but let's face it, this stretches across the province. And especially when you look at the numbers that we quoted for what it takes to get into a house, the average house price continues to go up. In the last 10 years, we've seen it more than double in London. Right now, quoted by Star. The London St. Thomas Association of Realtors, going back to the month of April, average home price in London, $429,058. In Strathroy, $420. In St. Thomas, $356. In Elgin County overall, $411. So it's all about the same. Well, we've seen the Ontario government now try and push something in. It's an omnibus bill, and what it wants to do is address... Housing supply. That came out last week. So the housing supply action plan. What does this leave us with? What about the private equity story we were talking about earlier, where in 2008 you had a lot of private equity firms starting to invest in what would be real estate? That has led to a rise in things. We'll address all of that because joining us is Tony Irwin. He is the president and CEO of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. Tony, if you do talk with anyone who has gone looking for a new place to rent, they will tell you how difficult it can be to find a rental property. Is it really like that all over the province? Absolutely it is. I mean, we hear uh, day after day from from our members and uh, and others that um, finding a place to live has become you know increasingly difficult. Um, you know, we're seeing historical vacancy rates across Ontario. And so the message is loud and clear, which is, you know, we need more supply, uh, housing supply, and housing of all types so that people can have greater choice, uh, whether it be, you know, renting, uh, buying a home or renting an apartment, whatever it may be. But certainly this is a problem. It's not just a Toronto problem. It is, it is all over the province. What factors would you list as being key ones for lowering that vacancy rate? Well, when you look at what, um, and obviously the government has just come forward with its uh, housing supply action plan last week, more homes, more choice. Uh, we think this is going to go a long way towards filling the supply gap, which 
is estimated to be, you know, in the in the uh, rental uh, space, 100,000 new units will be needed over the next decade. Uh, that's a staggering number. So what do we do to try to sort of um, fill that uh, gap? And certainly, you know, the government is taking taking this very seriously, and they recognize and they've heard from us that the biggest obstacles to getting supply going uh, really relate to the amount of time it takes for projects to be approved. Uh, when you hear of six, seven, eight, uh, in some cases, 10 years for a project to be approved, that's simply far too long. And we can't uh, be living in an environment where it takes that long uh, to get shovels into the ground and get projects going. So uh, certainly uh, some of the actions the government is taking uh, in, in the legislation to speed up approval times, uh, to provide for uh, the province is, is, is providing or giving itself additional powers to fast-track approvals of projects in uh, areas where it makes sense. So whether it be near transit corridors, you know, transit stations, some employment lands that have not been u- being utilized for many years, uh, whatever sort of factory or uh, employment that existed on, on a site uh, is long gone and is not coming back. So, you know, it makes sense to uh, sort of rezone that, uh, that land to be able to allow for it to be housing. So those are a couple of things that uh, will certainly uh, get things moving. Uh, and there are other other components as well, uh, whether it be sort of changes to the uh, local planning approval uh, tribunal, the LPAT system, uh, which is where appeals go. There are all kinds of other things that the government is talking about, all of which will lead to decisions being made faster and projects being approved more quickly. Tony Irwin joining us. Tony is the president and CEO of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. As we take a look at at renting in the province of Ontario, when supply and demand kicks in and you have a low supply and a high demand, typically the price for things goes up. What are we seeing in terms of high rent prices? How, How high are they climbing? You know, I don't have specific data on that right in front of me now, but certainly we all know that we all know that rents have gone up significantly over the last, uh, you know, a few years, and you've, you've exactly explained the reason why. Uh, certainly, there are far more people looking uh, for places to live and less places available. Uh, so we know what happens in that scenario. We know that it causes causes rents to to increase, uh, and so that, of course, is another reason why we need more housing supply of all types. If more uh, units come online, uh, come to market, then it's going to have an impact on rents. Uh, that seems like a fairly sort of straightforward uh, analysis. If we increase supply, uh, more options, people have choice, uh, you know, property managers, owners of, of units will have to uh, take that into account when, uh, when, when rents are being set going forward. Sometimes you hear the words rent control. Where do we sit in terms of rent control in Ontario? So the government, uh, the Ford government was very clear in, in its um, uh, election campaign and certainly has, has um, uh, consistently stated since then uh, that rent control will not be, uh, will not be changed uh, for, for sitting tenants. So if you're a tenant uh, in, a, in a rental uh, today, rental building unit today, you are living under uh, rent control. And so every year the government determines how much rent can go up by. It's essentially uh, inflation. So this year it's 1.8%. That's not going to change. What the government did do uh, before government in last November was uh, sort of undo something that the previous Liberal government had done, uh, which was definitely impacting uh, supply, impacting projects moving forward, and that is to uh, return the, the exemption to rent control from new construction. So buildings, anything that's occupied after 
uh, November of last year. And that's an exemption that had been in place since 1991, I think even prior to that. So it had been, it had been in place during all political, all, uh, all parties had been in government during that time and recognized that in order to get more supply going, uh, you need to, there need to be some, some sort of, uh, measures in place that, uh, that are, you know, that certainly allow for that or certainly help that along. So for new projects, there will be that change, but quite frankly, you know, the previous government had changed it for about a year. Prior to that, it had been in place, you know, since 1991. So really, it, it had not changed for very long, but it did, it did have an appreciable impact on uh, projects uh, not going forward or being converted to condominium. And so that's something that will definitely help get more supply going. But as for the rest of, uh, of rent control, none, none of that has changed. Uh, tenants have significant protections under the Residential Tenancy Act, and, uh, and, and the rents they pay are rent-controlled, and the government has been, con- been firm in its commitment to maintaining that. And that's across the province? It is indeed. Okay. We're talking with Tony Irwin, Federation President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. Tony, we do hear things around the world, basically, about private equity firms getting involved in real estate. How much of an impact do you think that has in Ontario? Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right that we certainly see that happening. Uh, and I think from my, uh, perspective, uh, it's been very positive. And, and I'll tell you why I say that. Uh, I say that because you see private equity firms coming in, uh, and certainly it's happening in Toronto, Ottawa, uh, presumably it's happening in London as well. They're coming in and they're buying older portfolios, so older buildings, uh, buildings that have been perhaps family owned or owned by a different, uh, uh, had different ownership for a long period of time. We know two things, I think, about the um, the housing market in, in Ontario. One, there's not nearly enough supply. And secondly, it's an aging stock. So, you know, rental apartment buildings are getting quite old. Majority of them were built sort of pre, uh, you know, pre-1980. Uh, and, and in fact, many were built in the 60s and 70s. Those buildings are aging, and they require significant uh, capital to bring them to, to maintain them uh, and to do a lot of the sort of repairs that are major repairs, uh, roofs, uh, you know, uh, uh, boilers, uh, you know, the kinds of things that are, are, are sort of significant uh, invest, investment of, of money and resources. Uh, some of these larger uh, companies that are now coming in, they're able to do that. They have the financial wherewithal to come in to buy some of these older uh, portfolios of buildings and put in the money needed to bring them up to the standard that I think we all think they should be at uh, today. And so I think that's certainly a positive uh, development from some of these um, some of these uh, companies uh, coming in and, and buying these buildings. And unlike some other places in the world, if you do have rent control, it's not like they can come in and jack up the rent by 200% or something like that. Are we at least protected in that way if they come in and, and kind of refurbish a building? Yes, there are. I mean, there are protections. Absolutely. Now, to be fair, there are there is a mechanism in place that allows for owners to apply to the Landlord and Tenant Board uh, to for additional rent to cover uh, some of these types of, of investments. But uh, there are there are all kinds of sort of rules uh, governing that. What kinds of renovations uh, are qualify? And even if you do go through that process, an owner goes through that process uh, to apply, how much do you can be awarded is capped uh, at a certain percentage, it's three percent a year over three years. Um, but there are all kinds of uh, you know sort of uh, as I say restrictions, and and uh, it's it, there's a process in place. Uh, so, uh, you know, owners who, and, and quite frankly, I should also just point out that, you know, all kinds of repairs are done in buildings, uh, you know, every day, balconies and, and other things, uh, where owners don't 
uh, don't apply for that. They know that that's it's their investment. Uh, it's a cost that they bear. But when it comes to major, uh, you know, major improvements, uh, then there are there are there are circumstances where a landlord or an owner will apply for that. But as I say, there are caps and there are limits as to how much can be awarded uh, for the for that type of work. You had basically said a while ago, your organization had said, hey, this this could be a problem, and you had mentioned kind of the, the bureaucratic slowdowns that you can run into. Now that you see what the government is doing in trying to, you know, expediate things and get development going, how much of a win is this? I think it's, you know, I think it is a great day uh, for, you know, for landlords, uh, for tenants, quite frankly, for all Ontarians, because the government, what the government is doing, it's signaling that it takes this issue of housing very seriously. I mean, we see every election, whether it's municipal, provincial, the upcoming federal election, housing is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Why? Because it's becoming uh, a bigger challenge. Affordability, uh, availability, you know, this is something that's top of mind for Canadians, for Ontarians, for, for, for people living in London. This is a big issue. And so the government has, has said we take it very seriously. We know that action needs to be taken, and we're going to bring forward legislation and regulations following that that will uh, perhaps, uh, well, we believe certainly will uh, create a different environment uh, to, that says we want to work with, uh, with builders uh, with the industry to get more supply online so people can have greater choice uh, and, and in doing that, uh, more affordable options. I think that's a win for everyone, uh, for, for certainly for my members, for those who build and manage properties, but also for Ontarians and for uh, not only Ontarians who are living here now, but the immigrants uh, you know, who, who flock to this country and this province because it's uh, one of the greatest places to live in the world. We welcome immigrants every year uh, and, and we want to be able to house them. So I think this is a great day for for all concerned. Tony, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Tony Irwin, President and CEO of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. So what do you make of that? I mean, as Richard outlined, and he did so very correctly, there are always ways around things. And Tony alluded to that. But overall, you do have protections that you're not going to see your rent rise by $1,000 if you're staying in the same rental property. If you have any rental stories, either looking or living, or anything that outlines what life is like in looking for a first-time home, what that's like in today's market, please feel free. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Coming up, we are going to be talking with Declan Hill. He is someone who has written two books on match-fixing and is somebody who did so not just, oh, okay, well, I hear that there could be match-fixing. I'll do an interview with somebody. He infiltrated a match-fixing gang, followed them around, and then wrote a book. This guy has contacts like you wouldn't believe. After news, he's going to tell us which league in North America is most susceptible to match-fixing. That and more coming up. Declan Hill. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Also coming up in the second hour of the show, we're going to talk, after we talk match fixing, with a referee and get some perspective on the life of a referee. And we're going to talk about an organization that's trying to help referees. Remember a couple of weeks ago on London Live, we did something on officiating? Well, this is kind of an offshoot of that. It's something called Team Stripes. And this will happen in about 40 minutes from now. We will talk with Matt Hicks. 
and he will outline what Team Stripes is aiming to do and why, in fact, as a referee, he keeps going back. There was a great tweet from Josh Brown of the Kitchener Record, and it was talking about the London Nationals and Waterloo Siskins series for the Southern Sutherland Cup Championship. By the way, it wraps up on Wednesday, 7.30 at the Sports Center at Western Fair. That's Game 7. You need to be there. You need to be yelling for the Nationals. Don't be yelling at the referees, because he questioned that. Why do people just go and yell at the referees? Because that's all they were doing. I don't get that. If you are that person, what's wrong with you? We'll talk about what brings Matt Hicks back to refereeing time and time again. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We need to say a big hi to everybody who's over at JP2 Secondary School. I don't know if they can hear us. Should we yell louder? I promise I won't yell. They are out doing their one run today. One run comes up on June 14th. Teresa Carrier is going to be running 100 kilometers again out to Strathroy and then back around and the entire course will take 100 kilometers. And this, of course, helps in the fight against cancer. Teresa is a breast cancer survivor, and one of the things that kind of grew out of her original one runs, which took her from London to Sarnia, from Sarnia to London, she did that four times. So what they decided to do, because you can't run 100 kilometers in a day every year. You, the human body was not supposed to run a marathon, let alone 100 kilometers. That's how amazing Teresa is. So... High schools took it over, and JP2 was one of the first schools to do it. Westminster has really caught on to this. They had theirs on Friday, and students will run 100 kilometers over the course of an entire day, and they, they split it up. We're not saying, hey, kids, come on out, run the track, keep going. All right, you're almost at a kilometer, just 99 more to go. That's not what it is. They share the 100 kilometers, and it becomes a fantastic event. And so many schools in London are taking part. And today it's JP2, and it is a little bit on the wet side. Matt McKinnis is here right now. He was over there helping out, and he's – Matt, you're still uh, – yeah, he's nodding. He's, he's still thawing out and drying out. It says it feels like six degrees outside, but when you factor in that chill you to the bone – you know, every part of the world has their own weather type. And we've got some great, humid, warm days. We've got some beautiful spring days. But if we had to be known for a type of weather, do you not think it would be the chill you to the bone stuff where it gets damp and then it's not even cold? It's eight degrees. But you are outside for a little while and you are frozen. And it's well above zero. That would be ours, wouldn't it? That or the, the little little rain, the stuff that you walk outside and you go, oh, this is fine. It's not raining that hard. And then you walk for 10 minutes and you're drenched. That kind of stuff. So I, I think that's what, it, what would we be known for? Email me at mike at 980cfpl.ca. If you know what weather type, if you had to say in southwestern Ontario, we have a certain weather that you don't get everywhere, here's what it is. It wouldn't be the nice sunny day, would it? No, it would be that that foggy type of rain or the chill you to the bone when it's wet and cold. That's that's us. But you know what? We live with it, and we love it. We're going to take a break. Next up, Declan Hill will join us. Declan is the author of The Fix, 
Soccer and Organized Crime. He's the author of Match Fixing and Football. He's an investigative journalist. And we'll talk about why some people are now coming out of the shadows to speak openly and publicly about match fixing. This is happening. And also, what North American League might be most susceptible to match fixing. That's next on London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Email from Brian that says, don't forget thunderstorms. We are one of the leading thunderstorm locations in Canada. Okay, well, that could be our weather. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You know what we're not known for, and that's a good thing? Match fixing. We are not a city known for its match fixing, and we do not want to be. But this is a fascinating topic, especially because of the increase and the availability of betting on sports. And this is only going to get bigger. And when there is money exchanging hands, there should be concern. And here's a person who knows it firsthand. Declan Hill is an investigative journalist. He is the author of Match Fixing in Football and The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. And he is someone who is always fascinating to speak with. Declan, how is life treating you these days? It's good. Uh, I've moved effectively professionally down to the United States. I'm working as a professor of investigations at a university in New England called the University of New Haven. And as part of the job, uh, I've done a whole series of research into which U.S. sports league is most at risk of uh, gambling-related match-fixing. And I'm also working on... um, what I'm hoping in my modest way is a revolution in terms of academic conferences. Uh, I'm trying to trying to transform conferences and make them interesting and, and, and actually worth listening to. Well, we're going to talk about one that you're putting together in June that is, uh, is on paper, one of the most interesting things you could find if you're interested in match-fixing and corruption and gambling. Are you ready to let on which sports league in North America is maybe the most susceptible, or, or is that still to come? Oh, gosh, no. Um, there's, a, there's a rule that I've, uh, you know, my, my research team here is modestly called the Hill Formula, after my last name, and it's basically uh, how much money is gambled on a league divided by the salary of the players. That's going to give you a rough indication of whether, you know, or a rough factor or indication of whether a league is most in danger of match-fixing linked to sports gambling. There's a whole bunch of other variables which will affect it, but that will give you a basic indication and obviously, to all our listeners, uh, the, the number one target is going to be NCAA. Uh, they still aren't paying their top athletes. There's still an enormous amount of money being gambled on their leagues, on their sports, <clears throat> particularly Tier 1 basketball and, and U.S. college football. That's renowned around the world for its gambling. They're not paying their players. The people selling hot dogs in the stadium are making more cash than the young men that are playing the sport. Uh, it's an open open invitation to sports gambling, and um, bless their hearts, the, the NCAA is is the last of the leagues to really sign on to sports gambling. They don't like it, and it really, really is in trouble. Existential problem now. Are leagues opening themselves up based on what they are looking into now? You look at the 
Alliance of American Football went under before it completed its first season, but it had that app. And you saw an investor in particular get involved because it had that app that allowed you to bet on things in real time. And that just seemed to be Mm -hmm. another step toward, hey, guess what? You can do that in the NBA or the NFL or, as you just suggested, NCAA sports. Are we getting to be that close? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, look, it, it, it's a genie that's well out of the bottle in the UK, and there's a couple of research papers that have come out now looking at what's happened to sports gambling in the United Kingdom uh, since about 2005 when similar um, legislation took place in that country. And, and effectively what it's showing is, is this new buzzword, fan engagement, is another fancy term for gambling addiction. So uh, particularly young men uh, get themselves hooked into gambling on sports. And so, you know, I've got to sound like everybody's dad at the moment. If there's young men listening to this, you were the worst sports gamblers in the world. (laughs) Everything that makes you young male, everything that you're good at, your, your tirelessness, your infatigability, your, your chasing after, um, you know, never surrendering, never giving up, you know, always pursuing what you're trying to get, your ambition, all those things that make you strong young men, good athletes, and all those things make you lousy sports gamblers. And, and anyone who tells you differently is trying to take your money. Um, and, and what you're seeing is a wave of sports gambling addicted young men, particularly athletes in the UK. And this is a serious, significant problem. It's just coming to the continental United States with the change in sports gambling laws. Up in Canada, we haven't changed our sports gambling law. There's a massive campaign to do so, but it really needs to be discussed to look at carefully. We're talking with Declan Hill, investigative journalist, professor now in the United States, author of The Fix, uh, Soccer and Organized Crime, Match Fixing in Football. And then I guess you look at Jeopardy and the fact that we've had a guy named James Holzhauer who is listed as being a sports gambler. He's a professional sports gambler. And look at how great he's doing. Look at He's yeah. fantastic. He's almost advertising for it. Yeah, and, you know, uh, in one way, he's a poster child for uh, how difficult it is to be a sports gambler. Uh, Look, one of the people on my faculty I've recruited, he used to run a sports book, the government-regulated sports book in Denmark. Denmark's a European country with, like, basically five million people. I said, how many customers did you have in your sports book? And he said, one million, one in five of the people of Denmark were, were his customer. I said, well, how many of those people won? You know, how many of them were, were consistent, chronic, long-term winners on your sports book? And he said, five. And I said, oh, okay, like, you mean 5,000? And he's like, no, five. And I, I said, okay, 500. No, five. The number of fingers you have on your hand, Declan. That's how many people out of one million could win. So... You think how difficult it is what this guy is doing on Jeopardy. It's, it's as difficult in terms of um, being a, sports, a successful sports gambler. And there's a whole load of malarkey out there trying to convince our listeners that it's easy to sports gamble. You make money sports gambling. This is simply untrue. 
often you have a better chance of winning a lottery than you do of beating those sports gambling bookmakers. So a strong, strong um, caution to our listeners, be careful. If you start getting into sports gambling, it can be addictive. Um, if you want to do it, just assume that you're going to lose. Have some fun, but but don't think of it as anything else than just a, a pleasant way of losing your money. Boy, we've been talking for a few minutes now, and, and we've only talked about the up and up, the legal side of things. And then and then we turn into kind of the, the underbelly of this, which, as you have outlined many times, and we mentioned the books, you have shown that, yeah, this isn't always on the up and up. In fact, there's a lot of down and down. And now you've organized Murder Mafia Money, International Financial Networks of Crime, which is a conference that you're holding on the outskirts of Florence, Italy. This it sounds like you'd be walking into a movie set for something like this. Yeah, look, what I'm trying to do is, is there's, a, there's a conference in, in Switzerland called Davos where all these rich guys go and they clap each other on the back and eat caviar and drink champagne and talk about you know how they're going to run the world. I wanted to run a conference where the good people, the investigators, the hard-nosed researchers, the honest cops, the, the, the NGO workers, the, the good academics that were really interested in, in helping the rest of the world, that we could meet in pleasant circumstances and and work together um, in, in a in a brand new way. Uh, what I wanted to do is, you know, Mike, I, I've been a TV journalist for a long time, and and there are many good things about television journalists. We start on time, we deliver our information in a pithy, quick, hard fashion, and we finish on time. Um, I, I you know I'm not going to apologize. You know, there's a Kardashian country, and you know shows like Jerry Springer's former show. And, I, you know, that, that's just not good TV journalism in, in any way. But bring the best of TV journalism to the best of academics. So um, occasionally in university life, you can have an amazing academic that's done really interesting work that changes your mind, changes the way you view all of life and, and or a certain aspect of life. So I wanted to bring those two, the best of academics and the best of television journalism, put them in one room and get some really interesting people. So the conference kicks off with a genuine match fixer. 11 months ago, he was uh, working inside a gang that fixed well over 1,000 international tennis, basketball, soccer, and handball, and volleyball games, um, talking about his methods, talking about how they worked, what they did, talking about it in an open, uh, direct fashion. We finished the conference with one of the most courageous men in the world, those are not my words. It's the words of uh, an international award for courage uh, based in New York in 2014. Nicola Grateri who was a fighter against the Calabrian Mafia, the Nandrangheta, uh, has successfully prosecuted hundreds of these mobsters in, in now, frankly, uh, Europe's most successful organized crime group. So the beginning is a, is a former match fixer speaking openly about his work and it ends with this guy um, who's, who's really put his life on the line against Nandrangata. And in between, it's all kinds of, of similar people with interesting real-life experience. We're talking with Declan Hill, investigative journalist, professor, author of Match Fixing and Football, author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. Now, what is it that is making people like this willing to come out and, and speak openly? That sounds like something that, that they wouldn't necessarily be ready to do. 
Well, the, the match fixer um, uh, came out of the gang uh, partly with my assistant. Um, as you know, I've got a lot of contacts in that world. Um, and so he is no longer a, a fixer. Uh, he, he's taken a straight and legitimate path. Uh, he's never worked in Italy. Uh, he's willing to speak openly about this. Um, Antonio Nicasso and uh, Nicola Grateri. Antonio is a colleague of mine. He's a, he's a, he's a journalist and author living in just outside Toronto. Um, he's written books with Nicola Grateri about the Nandrangata, their latest book. Uh, is an extraordinary book. It, it, it's top of the bestseller list in Italy, and it shows the links in money laundering between the Calabrian mafia, between the Nandrangata, and certain key officials in the Vatican. Uh, I don't want to suggest in any way this is the official Catholic hierarchy. This is just key corrupt officials inside that hierarchy. As you and our listeners can imagine, this has become a huge story in Italy, it's been uh, transformed into one of the, the next series of Narcos on HBO. Um, and it, 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 it's really an extraordinary story. So Nicola has spoken publicly before. He and I were at a conference in Italy last month. Uh, I was staying in the same um, floor of the hotel. And his bodyguards, which accompany him 24-7, 365 days a year, were all around the hotel, were all around the, our, our hotel floor, were everywhere. Um, so he has, is ri- literally risking his life to make sure that Italy and the world wins this war against organized crime. As a last question, is it getting worse or is the pushback coming and maybe it's, it's, it has a chance to be cleaner? Look, um, you know, I, I think in terms of it, Italy, you, get, you should ask that question to an Italian um, I, I, I don't want to step into that field, and there, there are many of our listeners who would just say, look, uh, you know, speak to an Italian about a question like that. Mm-hmm. In terms of organized crime in sport, uh, the, the battle has begun. Um, part of what is getting in the way of the fight is that there have been a series of fake industry groups which have, have really putting themselves in the way. Uh, I think for our listeners, the best way... Uh, of understanding quickly is it's kind of like the fight against cancer that was kidnapped by the tobacco industry in the 1970s and 80s. The tobacco industry put up a bunch of these fake medical research groups and, you know, charity groups and citizens group and really diverted research off tobacco for decades. The same thing has happened in sports integrity. Uh, It would be much easier for us to fight against organized crime in sports if the Qataris weren't putting money in to sports integrity. Uh, the Qataris are the same people that are running the 2022 World Cup, and they're desperate that nobody talks about the conditions in Qatar or the uh, way that Qatar won the World Cup. Because of that, they've sponsored a number of sports integrity groups, and it's very difficult to get around them just discuss the issues in good faith. Um, I wish it weren't. I wish the Qataris had taken some of their money and put it into the FBI, put it into Interpol, put it into serious groups that could seriously fight against it. Declan, thank you so much for the time today. Always fascinating to talk with you. Guys, thank you so much, and and let's keep up the fight. Declan Hill, he is a two-time author 
of books called The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, in which he infiltrated a match-fixing ring and then wrote about it and match-fixing in football. He's an investigative journalist, he's a doctor and professor, and he's somebody who has been studying this for years. So as far off as it sounds or as unlikely as it sounds, what he says he has seen firsthand. What he is talking about now, and it's neat that he's having basically now a conference that brings out people who have done this. Yes, I was part of a match-fixing ring. Here's my story. Yes, I did this. Here's my story. Yes, I have been trying to fight against this. Here's my story. So it's putting names and faces to what has been written about and reported for a long, long time. And it's wild because sports betting is only growing. It's only getting easier and easier to do it. And that's, in a way, fun for some people because there's billions of dollars. You name it. There is billions of dollars in sports betting. Billions of dollars that go into the NCAA basketball tournament. Every year in betting, the Super Bowl, unbelievable amounts of money are bet. And now it's coming to the touch of a button on your phone. Well, what if you can't do it responsibly? What then? The people with the books, they don't care. They like those people. It's like slot machines. They love slot machines. Bring in a lot of money. It's coming from the same people who can't stop pulling the arm, pushing the button. So we're heading toward a a weird part of that world. We'll follow it on London Live. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Might have to raise the issue as we go along this week about driver's tests. You know how I've beaked off before saying we need more tests? And we have had people saying, no, 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 that's, that's a government money grab. Yeah, I know. So is the graduated licensing system. So is the increase in the amount of money we pay for our license plate sticker. All of that is a money grab. Might as well throw another one into the mix. Why not? If you had to go every 20 years and pay, let's even say 15 bucks, because that's what it costs to take your G1. If every driver in Ontario had to do that, Pay 15 bucks. Would that be okay? Would you be in? I think I would, and I'll tell you why. I can scrounge up $15. I think everybody can. Stop buying coffee for a little bit. You can scrounge up 15 bucks. Here's why. My son's about to turn 16, and there's an app which generates a G1 test. Okay, generates 50 questions, which is what the G1 test is, and you can take it on your phone, right? G1 test. Give me a break. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is just standard stuff, right? <laughs> this, this is not hard. This is, this is the rules of the road. I mean, one of the questions you could technically get is, here's a stop sign. What are you supposed to do when you see this? A lot of the multiple choice answers involve, should you honk your horn? That's there. Should you speed up and get out of the area? That's one of the choices in more of them than you would want to imagine. So I sat down last night 
and I downloaded the app, and I will dare you to do the same. You know where this is going, don't you? I will dare you to do the same. The app is called G1 Test. That's it, and make sure, because there's a million of them, but this one uses the questions from the G1 Test, and make sure you get the one that is a red box, and there's G1, and then there's kind of a white box with red letters in it that says test, okay? That's what you're going for, and you hit it, and then you put take the test. Last night, I sat down, I took the test. I got 82%. Don't pat me on the back. A pass is 86. You're only allowed to get seven wrong. I failed the G1 test. And I was trying. And I was kind of chuckling, not out loud, because I was kind of concerned about some of the questions as I went along. Some of them, some of them are not that easy. So what I actually looked at here was the fact that I've been driving for about almost 30 years. 30 years. And I take this test and I realize I couldn't pass my G1 right now. Forget about taking the actual driving test. And maybe this is just me. You can go ahead and call me an idiot. Only call me an idiot after you've downloaded this thing and aced it. I got 82. That's a pass. That's an A in most things. Not for driving. Not for the G1. You need 86. I failed. So let me see if I can just, you know... Uh, here's actually here. Here's a question. Here's one of the ones that comes up. When does the law require the headlights on vehicles to be turned on? And here are your choices: between sunset and sunrise, between half an hour before sunset to half an hour after sunrise, and at any other time you cannot see clearly for a distance of 150 meters, between dusk and dawn, or at any other time you cannot see clearly for a distance of 150 meters. No specified time. I have no idea, to tell you the truth. Do you know when are headlights supposed to be turned on? I'm going to look it up, because I think that's one of the ones I got wrong last night. I think I had that one. And so you answer it, and you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I failed. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, you've had time to think about this. When does the law require the headlights on vehicles to be turned on? Your choices are between sunset and sunrise, between half an hour before sunset to half an hour after sunrise, and at any other time you cannot see clearly for a distance of 150 meters, between dusk and dawn, or at any other time you cannot see clearly for a distance of 150 meters, or no specified time. I went between sunset and sunrise when I took the test. If you're just joining us, I took the G1 test last night. I failed. I would not get my G1. I have my driver's license right now, full G. Full G, I can go wherever I want. I haven't had a ticket in decades. Last one I had, I think it was 1998. So, I should be able to pass this. I failed 82%. And I think what that proves is we all need to do a little bit more testing of ourselves to be able to drive. The right answer in this is between half an hour before sunset to half an hour after sunrise and any other time you cannot see clearly 
for a distance of 150 meters. Good multiple choice test takers will be yelling out right now, come on, you picked the longest one. Not always. But sure, I guess. But that that's hard. That's not an easy question. At least I hope it's not. You know when I turn on my headlights? When I can't see. That's when I turn on my headlights. I didn't see that choice in the test because ultimately it comes down to common sense. You know, if you've got somebody who decides to make a lane between you and the person beside you, you've got to have the common sense to know when I pull away from this stop, I'm not going to veer to my right and squish this person. I'm not going to do that. Those are the kinds of things you cannot test. So they do their best on the G1. Take it. I dare you. Let's talk about somebody who enforces rules in a different way. Matt Hicks is part of Team Stripes. We talked about officiating a little while ago and wondered why it was that people were going back to become referees. What was it that was in it that made it so great in order for us to still have sports? Because for the way that referees are treated by parents and spectators, you would think they would have all quit by now. Matt Hicks is a referee. And he is part of Team Stripes, and he joins us now. Matt, how are you? Good, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. You are going to be able to provide us with a unique perspective going back to something we were talking about last week, and that is officiating. Because right now, your job takes you through the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Are you refing anywhere else as well? Uh, yeah, I work uh, worked Major Junior now. This is my eighth season. I uh, also work uh, a fair amount of uh, university hockey uh, and then a little bit of uh, Junior A, and I still do some uh, some minor hockey if it's with uh, maybe a younger official that I can go out and uh, help mentor a little bit. I enjoy doing that. So uh, really right from the top uh, down, I like to try to stay as involved as I can, but uh, mainly work in Major Junior and University. Well, first off, thank you for doing that, because as we talked about last week, I have no idea how we have enough officials for games. What makes you want to get up at the beginning of every year and put your skates back on and grab your whistle and go back out on the ice? What What is it that takes you there? Uh, quite honestly, and I think it's the same way for a lot of the guys. I want to speak for all of us, but um, I think there's like an, a level of athleticism that's involved, especially especially in hockey. Um, you know, I played sports my whole life and obviously at 28 years old now the dream's over in any, any of those sports, but I still kind of like to compete. Um, and you know, you gotta, you gotta be in the gym. Like the three things right now that they're really looking for, uh, in officiating in the hockey side is, uh, skating ability, physical fitness, and, um, feel for the game. So the first two, you know, obviously require, uh, a fair amount of athletic ability and then staying in shape and stuff like that. That's really, really important in the game now. So uh, for me, it's it's what I do for a sport now. Um, you know, when I, I train in the off season, a good friend of mine actually got hired in the National Hockey League last year, Jesse Marquis from Bucktoosh. Uh, him and I train in the off season together. Um, so I think that's what, uh, that's what drives me to do it. I love the game too. It keeps me, uh, keeps me involved in the game and, um, you know, as they say, keeps me out of trouble. So uh, that would be, you know, what motivates me at the start of the year for sure. Matt, junior hockey fans can be very 
passionate, let's say, and especially when the playoffs arrive, the passion seems to grow. That whole us-against-them attitude just it hits a whole new level. You have to go into rinks, and you have to be in some pretty interesting atmospheres. What is it like when all of a sudden the crowd decides they didn't like a call that you made? Well, I'll give it just to touch on the us against them. That's funny that you say that because one of my favorite things, if I see a guy that I've refereed before, um, you know, out and about, whatever, he'll say, uh, do you remember me? You refed against me. No, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't ref, I don't ref against anybody. <laughs> I referee the game for a league. I don't ref against anybody. So it's just funny that you say that. Like, that's the mentality is like, it's really, we're, we're, we're a negative. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the way people see it. Like, we're in the way or, like, we're in the way of the game or whatever. But, um, you know, the good, the good officials try to have a positive influence on the game. But to touch on your question about, um, you know, a bad call or whatever, quite frankly, in a rink, uh, in a rink that's like the size of Halifax or Moncton, you know, sits 5,000 plus, Unless the entire fan base is making the same noise at the same time, so if it's a boo or a chant or whatever, we really don't hear them. The times that you hear stuff is in minor hockey or maybe in senior hockey or whatever, where it's a, you know, it's a bit of an old school rank and the glass is short and it holds, you know, if there's 900 people in there, the fire marshal's going crazy type thing. That's really where you hear the heckles, but. It, in the larger scale rinks, and you know, in the uh, in the environment I'm fortunate enough to work in, like unless the entire crowd goes crazy, like you don't you don't you don't hear that. You're so focused and involved in the game that I mean, you're going to hear the coaches and stuff, but you're not going to hear the fans. We're talking with Matt Hicks, who is a major junior official, university official, as he says, still refs minor hockey as a mentor, and he's part of Team Stripes as well. You can find them at GoTeamStripes.com. It is a website, it's a podcast just for officials, and we're talking officiating and getting another perspective on what it is like to be an official. Now, what could make your life better as an official? Oh, that's a great question. Um, more knowledge by for everybody. Um, you know, the thing that drives me the most crazy when I go to a rink and I'm either mentoring or supervising a younger official, I'll give you an example. In the game of hockey, you are allowed to make a hand pass in the defensive zone. The defensive team is allowed to make a hand pass in the defensive zone. That's a legal play, Okay. Somebody whose parent of little Jimmy, who's playing Adam A, and of course little Jimmy's going to the National Hockey League because he plays Adam A. He's nine years old and he plays the highest level of hockey, so he's definitely going to make the <laughs> National Hockey League. Uh, and there's a hand pass in the defensive zone, and Dad goes ballistic and starts screaming at the officials. And it's like, man, like that's he's allowed to do that. Do you know what I mean? So, and even like the one. I would say maybe at our level that a lot of coaches don't understand is too many men. Too many men is a bit of a complex call. Um, like the rule technically says that the players that are changing for each other have to gain possession and control of the puck. So if I rifle the puck and there's two guys changing and it goes off some guy's shoulder, like it's not too many men. But there's a general conception that 
if there's six guys on the ice, it's too many men, and that's not the case. So I think my life would be a little easier if there was more knowledge um, from the fans and the coaches, um, but also if there was there was more resources that were were brought to me. I, you know, I, I'm lucky uh, here in Moncton, New Brunswick. Like we've got an unbelievable crew of officials uh, that are older than myself, like Guy Pellerin, refereeing the Olympics. Uh, you know, we've got six or seven guys that referee in the American Hockey League. Um, and that's really the only reason that I'm any good at all is because those guys have mentored me. But, you know, if I'm somebody and I'm in a, you know, an outskirt or whatever where maybe there's not, not as much um, mentoring or, or leadership, uh, you know, when I go and I write my level one exam and then it's like, here's your whistle and your skates, like, have at her. Um, you know, I might be a little bit, um, I might be a little bit under-equipped and that's kind of what we're trying to do at Team Stripes, to be honest, uh, you know, is, is give these guys a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more knowledge and a couple more tools in their toolbox. Well, it is a great initiative. The mentoring is so key. So you're not worried about us having enough officials going forward then. That's not a concern of yours. Sports should continue. We should always have referees. I mean, to say that we'll never not have, like, that's a, the world's got to end then. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a number, uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I know that there's a number of officials that uh, don't return um, for whatever reason, whether they didn't like it, whether there was some abuse from a coach, or, you know, whether they felt like they were, you know, sent out on this island by themselves and nobody was there to watch them or help them or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's a concern. That's a concern at any sport at any level. And at Team Stripes, that's kind of what we're trying to do is get these younger grassroots folks, um, you know, a, a, a sense of community where they can come if they have a tough game or they have a question or whatever, uh, you know, via social media or email or whatever it is, our online course all that stuff, um, you know, where they can have a chat and, and maybe myself or, or Brandon, who's also involved, whatever, we reach out to them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that, like, next year we're not going to have refs for hockey, but I think that we can do a better job, um, you know, in any association, probably in any sport. I don't want to speak for, you know, soccer or football or basketball or whatever because I don't really know, but I would assume, uh, you know, the same thing would apply there. Well, you can visit GoTeamStripes.com. Have a look. Matt, thanks so much for all the time today. We really appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks for having me. Matt Hicks, referee, part of Team Stripes. So GoTeamStripes.com. And maybe it'll encourage people to become officials. As Matt says, interesting point, if it's a big rink, you don't hear the fans. If it's a small rink, you do. And a lot of times that's maybe what makes minor hockey seem bad, to say the least, when you have people yelling at officials. All right, that topic is not going anywhere anytime soon. It still shocks me. We have enough officials to still have sports. Thanks to Matt. Thanks to everybody else who actually does it. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL. Coming up tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk about people who think they're doing an animal a favor 
or who think they're doing themselves a favor by adopting, say, a snake. And then they realize, woo, I didn't, didn't know snakes were like this. And then they dump the animal. Happens more than you would want to believe. One of the topics we will get to on London Live. Thanks to Matt McInnes and Matt Trevithick for their help on the show today. London Live brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.